Welcome to the Urban Golf Podcast. What's up? This is Mac. I'm here with Leo Rooney. What's happening, Leo? Well, I mean, it's funny. We're, we're recording this intro actually a couple months after we did this episode. And uh, I just played with this person last week, unfortunately, because uh, we had a little money game going. And he shot 63 with a bogey on the last hole. And so I lost money, even though I've, I paired up with the club champion. So, yeah, wasn't enough. <laughs> yeah, and I don't think I know anybody with as many like sets of old clubs and like I mean like he's got like he probably has like six or seven versions of the Cleveland Pro Launcher in his garage there. So, you know, he's he's a true student of the game. I mean, I mean I like I remember being a junior golfer like literally getting the new Titleist 975D driver and taking off all of the paint. And then like we would like make them look like dull and play with them and things like that and and it's like we'd put lead tape all over th- and so it's like these kids now they have screws and like interchangeable this and so Nico's not into all the screws and the interchangeable things and so <laughs> it's uh it's yeah, funny he's, man he's yeah. more into the the pre 1920 equipment so Nico obviously played at USC and then played for many years professionally mostly over in Europe and was based out of Italy we've gotten to know Nico really well He's an awesome guy. He's a true purist. And he won the U.S. Open in Hickory Golf, I think, in 2018 or, or yeah, uh, 2017. Yeah, I think so, yeah. <laughs> He's always right in there, too. And one of my funniest memories with Nico is just in the beginning when we opened UGP here in Orange County, he would, <laughs> he would come into the bays barefoot with his Hickory clubs. And if you haven't played Hickory Golf, so the basically what it, Hickory is, you, if you compete, you can't use any technology past, I think it's 1920, I might be wrong there. Mm-hmm. But the grips are basically glazed or whatever you call it with pine tar. They're, they're pine tar and that smells very strong. And it's a great smell. I love the smell. But it, it's just so Nico to come in and, and hit balls with his hickory clubs and the whole, uh, whole location, not just the bay, the whole place smells of pine tar. <laughs> and he's just feeling the ground and playing and getting his distances with his hickory clubs. I think that's that kind of sums up Nico Bellini. Yeah, and, well, and, I like, I, you know, <laughs> he's so funny. I mean, like, you know, the and also, too, like with these hickory championships, if you ever like Google that thing, because like they're they're there in like the full garb and like Sandy Lyle's always right in there. He's like one of the top five hickory players in the world. So like you got the real deal. These are all like real good players that are just like total traditional golf nerds that like like whipping their own shafts and t- pine tar leather their grips yeah. <laughs> and they carrying their little mashies around and their spoons their niblicks and stuff and <laughs> and they got their you know their their they got their long socks and their metal spot i mean it's just like it is out of a movie these guys and they're absolute golf purists i mean one of my favorite memories of nico we were having like i think our grand opening party for that orange county that newport location and he he sticks a golf ball in his mouth and there's like the bay has like 20 people in it and he just takes it to the top of his swing and on his transition he just drops the ball out of his mouth and just stripes it perfectly like he can't miss like that like it's like the cra- it's craziest thing you know so. yeah and you don't win the use open in hickory golf unless you have a golf swing that's conducive for that equipment and it's not enough to just be a good golfer you have to have a certain uh feel and a certain rhythm to play to hit those clubs well i mean and i think a rhythm and tempo is just i mean it's a prerequisite to even 
get the ball f- uh, in the air. And so Nico has, I mean, arguably one of the best moves around still to this day. You you play better golf just playing with him because he has this uh, very interesting kind of calm approach to the game and his swing is just yeah i mean the biggest hats you've ever seen in your life too the biggest hats he makes like ben hogan's hat but like three times the size he looks like he's out delivering papers in the 1850s so he definitely can't you know he definitely can't go out and shoot 77 with that hat on or the or the jones bag that has a you know wooden a stand that he needs to put out. He's, every one of the, he's time. easily one of the most interesting characters. He's in Argentine too. He's like fully like, you know, he's like, I think he speaks more than Spanish. He speaks like three or four or five languages. So he's like, I mean, he's just an absolute international eclectic guy and like one of the nicest people you'll ever meet too. And, you know, he played college golf at USC. He was an all beater. He was like one of the guys coming out of college. There's like, he's going to be like a st- absolute stud. Like, so he's, He's the real deal, but he is so unique in his approach. And I identify with him strongly because, I, you know, golf for me, it wasn't just about the high-level performance of the game, but it was also, like, the relationships. And the Nico's savvy, man. He likes, like, a good, like, Negroni, and he likes, like, a nice, like, long cigarette kind of thing. He's just, like, a very interesting cat that loves good music, loves good food, loves culture. And so when he was out there playing on the European tour and traveling around, he was, like, more into like the scene and the people and that's what he said when he realized professional golf wasn't for him wasn't his ability it was more just like and that's what i think a lot of people don't realize they get frustrated and he didn't really get angry but he just realized like for me i'm more into like experiencing life on the road than i am actually getting excited to go play these events yeah no this is an, an awesome conversation with a good friend and you know i think that they they are needed because they are i mean if everybody was out there in travis matthew clothes and and uh tailor-made drivers it would be kind of boring right oh so yeah I, you know yeah no you're right he's a traditionalist and that's like i think it's like a storyteller like that's what i think about when i think about nico he plays golf and tells stories like and that's that's some of the best people that i've ever played golf with in my life they're not just there like pounding their tailor-made drivers and like you know getting ready you know getting ready to hit their shot they're there to actually like have an experience and nico can just be high level performance and also high level like conversations on the course and like actually like you know really connect and and things like that so he's just you know he's he's uh this conversation was great and we really hope you take a lot from it enjoy guys see you next week So tell us about the storage. Tell us about the golf clubs that you have behind you. Um, it's pretty much uh, a story of, of my golfing career from when I was an amateur college golf to when I turned pro. So it's a bunch of collection of Clevelands and 14s and Strixons and those pretty much three. And then I got some old Titleists. I can't find my 681s. I know, Mac, you have a couple of the 681s like refinished. But then I got a couple handful of old McGregors here that I'm going to re- restore so, eventually with the clonochrome face right here. So you just, you just save every club basically that you've, no. uh, you've played. No, no, not at all. I've thrown, I've given a lot of stuff away and I regret it because I had some great stuff. Like I used to have 10 to 15 John Byron putters. I don't know where they are. Not one. <laughs> I don't have one John Byron putter. <laughs> they so just disappeared. They just disappear. I mean, I think it's a combination of my dad, like trading stuff into Roger Dunn when I was gone and like not me knowing, me not knowing about it. 
And I blame Johnny. I give Johnny a hard time because he used to just come freely and take stuff. And then he won't admit to it, but I give him a hard time. Like this, you know, he's got, he's got 14 woods and, and stuff like that. He's like, oh, this is the greatest firewood. I'm like, yeah, you took from my garage 10 years ago. He's like, no, I didn't. I'm like, yes, you did. <laughs> so I give him a hard time about that. But now the script is flipped and I'm getting stuff from him or trying to at least. I told him, like, yeah, hey, like... <laughs> of all the things that you've taken from me over the years, like you owe me big. So, but just like nostalgic <laughs> stuff, like this, these set of irons I used to get through like my first, you know, Q school, you know, they're worthless, but sentimental value you know there's all yeah. school cleveland cg ones which led to were you were you always a nerd with clubs oh big time i mean that's how johnny like and I, from beginning yeah that's how johnny and i formed a relationship to be honest the only reason why i met johnny was because he had a brand new set of mizuno mp29s that's <laughs> the that's the only reason why he was at your belinda hitting golf balls i was 12 13 years old and you know when you're a young kid and you're a good golfer you kind of think you're you know invincible or like the, you know big shot kind of deal and i knew all the high school kids i knew all the young amateurs and whoever was at the club you know because i was i felt like i was the best one and then i see this kid johnny i didn't know him at the time but i see him i'm like i'm assuming he's in high school and he's got a black i remember exactly what he had in the bag he had a black ping hoofer all blacked out and he had mizuno mp29 irons and they were just sparkling you know and he had his he had his same golf swing kind of athletic but you could tell he was new to the game. Hmm. So I just went up to him and he had a Scotty Cameron. He had a Scotty Cameron long neck trillium. I don't know if it was long neck. It was neck the perfect, yeah. perfect icebreaker. Oh, Friendship absolutely. right away. Perfect icebreaker. So I just walked up to him. I was like, I'm Nico. I'm like, who are you? <laughs> kind of thing. It's like, oh, you know, I'm Johnny. I'm from Seattle. I'm like, what high school do you go to? And then that's when he broke. He's like, no, I'm actually 20. And I'm here. He was the ball boy for the Angels at the time. And I'm sure he told you guys before. Um, and he was living there for the summer, um, working for the Angels. And Mark Langston, the family he lived with, um, he was a member at your Belinda and got him a deal where Johnny could practice and play when the team was traveling because Johnny was just getting into golf. And that day, that very first day, we had a putting contest. I beat him for like food. So he drove, we drove to McDonald's in his forerunner and he got like a Big Mac. And I'd never eaten McDonald's. I was like, sure. And, you know, he had all the CDs and he started teaching me about outcasts and all these like old school rap groups that he loved back in the day. And then we formed a relationship and gosh, a month later, he ended up moving into my parents' house. So he was like my de facto big brother. And he lived with us for five months or something like that, all the way through the rest of the baseball season. I'd stay up. This is at the advent of AIM. So I'd stay up and he'd come home from baseball games like at midnight. And we just like sit there and jump on AOL or whatever it was and just whatever we were doing at the time, but, and just nerd out, talk about golf clubs, talk about what's in the bag with David Tom. So we drive to that Mitsua, I think it was Japanese market in Costa Mesa to buy a magazine called like golf magazine or golf loyalty or, you know, majesty golf. And it, it have a, what's in the bag, just a hundred pages of the Japanese tour events with no head covers and, to go, and to go through a description of what was in the bag. I know we always thought, man, it'd be kind of cool if we had something like that here. But I had that, I had that exact same set. I had that hoofer with the with the long neck and the MP twenty nines and because I was because I actually I fell in love with that set because at El Paso Country Club growing up, JP Hayes was there. That was his home course and where he practiced when he wasn't out on tour. And I think he just like won the John Deere, and I was like in awe, like sitting there watching him practice. 
just such a meticulous like practicer and he had those mp29s he had the mizuno staff bag and the whole thing and i just remember i remember getting the box of those blades and it was like the best thing ever trying to be like jpas well and the mp29s i remember they had the they had the copper plating underneath was it copper or bronze plating? It was like copper plating underneath. So when they chipped, you'd see a little bit of that copper underneath. So the MP29s mm. were the proper blades. And then like the MP14s were for like the rest of the, 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 the peons. Like, you know, they couldn't, you know, because the, the MP29s at the time were expensive irons. I remember them being. Then there was a isn't level. That what, isn't that what Tiger was playing, the 14s in the, in the long neck? Yeah. He had, no, he had the 29s, the short irons, I believe. And he had the 14s and the long irons. Why? I don't know. That was weird. And yes, he had the long neck. And then he went to the 681s. Yeah. Yeah. He into, and that's weird because if you look at his master's bag, it was a split of the Mizunos. And I, I wanted to ask Johnny or I want to talk to somebody, but why is there a split? Because when you put those irons down, they look, you know, from the top of my head, I remember them looking identical. So I don't know why he had the 29s and the short irons, 14s and the long irons. Yeah, and then he had the Scotty long neck. For a while, he had that Pro Platinum. Remember that one, the long neck? And then he went to the black mm-hmm. one. That Pro Platinum, I think, the long neck he used to win Vegas. And uh, Walt Disney, his like, first two pro events. And then the Masters came around, and he switched to the regular Terillium, like neck. And that's, uh, that was his 97 Masters. It's interesting. His iron set hasn't changed that much over the years. You know, even what he's playing today is like really similar to that same set makeup when he was first coming out. Yeah, it is yeah. very similar. Absolutely. I mean, I think he's one of those guys where he knows what he what he plays with. He knows what he likes. He has the same lofts and he sticks with it. He has the same guys make his irons. You know, and all those guys do like Elkington. You know, I used to spend time in his garage and all the irons that he has built, they're identical. With, no matter who makes mm-hmm. them, whether Taylor may make some, or the Titleist makes some, or the Don White's grinding them. They all have that same look. They're sharp, they're small, and they're simple. Same with Norman. I mean, when Norman, I love that video that he posted in his garage, all those like the Norman Cobra blades that he had. I mean, those, that's the ultimate set right there. I know Pat Boyd at Natural Custom makes a pretty cool. What I want to ask you, like, what's so, what's your favorite thing about equipment? Is it the aesthetics? Is it performance? Is it nostalgia? Like, how come you're so passionate about it? It's shifted. It's shifted from performance, right? And, and I think everybody mm-hmm. was in the same boat. When you were a kid, if you wanted to send a ping irons, you wanted the nickel irons, right? Or the beryllium irons. Uh, the mm-hmm. Mizunos, you wanted the MP29s. Now it's more nostalgia. Now that I'm not long, no longer playing like really high competitive golf, it's nostalgia. And you appreciate those old school guys when you were a kid that had the, the throwback irons because in a lot of ways, golf is art, right? And especially club making. And I think there's a big group of people out there that yearn for those days of, of club making being an art. You watch like a, a Persimmon Woods get refinished now. I mean, and they're works of art. You know, Patrick's actually, Patrick and Tad Moore are, are making a, a driver for me right now. It's an old LFF head, McGregor. And it's going to take a month to make or more. But man, it's going to be a work of art when it comes out. Where now it's just mm. mass produced. So you know, that's what, what takes me. The new stuff now doesn't excite me as much. Like, I don't really care about new releases of shafts. It doesn't really get me going anymore as it did before, you know, when I was playing at the high level. Now it's, yeah. it's looking into things that you can't find anymore. You know, Chris, it's like classic cars, basically. Yes, classic cars. Like Chris Hopkins, he's Greg Hopkins' son, who was a longtime CEO of Cleveland Strix on Golf. 
he posted a video the other day on Instagram. He was going through his dad's shed or they have a storage somewhere. And in this storage, he's pulling out irons that Byron Nelson gave him from his ranch in Dallas 20 years ago. And they're brand new McGregor heads. Then he's got a set of VIP irons that Curtis Strange gave him that were made for Curtis, you know, stamped with a number and his name on it. You know, irons from VJ, these one-off irons that you can't buy, you can't find anything even close to what they are. You know, stuff like that's beautiful. Like even this iron right here, like you can't, you can't really find <laughs> this Cleveland CG1 head anymore. It's a two iron that Brent Newsome made for me years ago. And they had the set, and you can't really tell on the camera, but it's really fat muscle back right here. Oh, yeah. See how yeah. thick it is with a tiny yeah. top line? This is like their version of a 681. And it's, it's so it's, it's so funny, man. I, I grew up going to like antique shops with my mom, and just you know, you'd, you it just reminds me of that, like as you're talking about everything. And next door to UGP, there's like a uh, in LA, there's like a, a children's charity sort of you know where they get all the stuff from mansions and things like that, and they they sell it at a discount. And it supposedly goes to charity. And I was going through there one day, and I found this brand new set, never been hit before, in the staff bag, black and white staff bag. Ping I2 Brilliums, like never hit, never touched, two iron to lob wedge, like the two iron to lob wedge all the way down the line in the black and white staff bag, like out of some guy's mansion that must have got him as a gift, never played golf, died, and then they, they were me, sitting there in that did, store, and I bought them for like 50 bucks. Do you still have them? Brand new Brilliant yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, they're here in they're here at corporate here in the back in the, oh, in the storage, get all those, wrapped up, ready yeah. for you. <laughs> those things, I think Johnny <laughs> talks about his like dream set and like his dream ninety set would be like the Brilliant Coppers. And I remember I traveled a lot with Hunter Mayhem as a kid, so a lot of people don't know that Hunter is a SoCal kid. Um, and him and I traveled quite a bit together, you know. And then we, he, you know, he committed to USC. He went to USC for a year. And that was a big reason why I committed there as well, because they had Hunter Mahan, Kevin Stadler, David O, John Ray Lee. Like, it was a stacked team. But Hunter's dad, Monty, used to have the best of the best equipment. And as a little kid, aside from the Mizunos, he had the Ping Zing 1 and then Ping Zing 2, or just Ping Zing 1 Brilliant Head Irons with a G Loomis graphite shaft. So the G Loomis with the Brilliant was like the, those were the clubs what, to have. What age were you, Nico, when you traveled with Hunter? Because he ended up moving to Plano in high school because I played regionals right. against him. He, he was in, uh, I remember seeing him at regionals as a freshman. He might've yeah. been a junior or senior. And I remember seeing his dad just like ripping into him after he shot 65 or 66 one day. And they're like fighting on the end of the range. Yeah, you, he, like, he left right before high school. So, cause he was going to go to Servite where I went to high school. So I think in between his eighth grade and freshman year, so I was in seventh grade, going into eighth grade, I think that's when he left to, to Texas, to McKinney. Yeah. You know, yep. and then he came yeah, back this- for a year and, you know, was in SoCal for a year when he was a freshman at SC. Yeah, right. We, he actually went to golf tech. When he was a junior or senior, we were both seeing this coach in, in North Dallas, Scott Young, and he was working with him at the same time. Talking about a club junkie, that guy had some stuff. Hunter had some good stuff. I remember going into his freshman year or his freshman year at SC, I had committed to USC. So I invited him, Johnny and myself went to a Bon Jovi concert in Anaheim just because Johnny was like a Bon Jovi, you know, rager. And Hunter, Hunter had these like 962Bs, one-off 962B irons. Then he had these Hogan Apex 99 irons with like lead tape 
that were so dialed in, right? And no one was really playing the Hogan Apex, except for Justin Leonard and the tour guys, Hal Sutton. But he had these things that were so mint. And I was still in the age in high school where, you know, my dad's telling me, he's like, oh, you can't play Blades. Blades are, you know, for the pros. You're not there yet kind of deal. And so I was like envious of him playing these like Hogan Apex Blades. Yeah, but that's when Hunter left. So that was kind of a bummer because I was stoked to play high school with him. And then he didn't get in college. You know, I committed SC and I was like, fight on, all this kind of stuff. We're going to be teammates. And then he left. Do you uh, have contact with him still? Once a year, I'll talk yeah. to him. Um, do, you know, do you know what's going on in the background there? No, I don't. I, Are you talking about me or like with Hunter? With Hunter. I mean, obviously, you know, well, probably top 30 player in the world, still, still fairly young and kind of disappeared. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, family affects people in a lot of different ways. Mm -hmm. And I know he got married and has a beautiful family. And some people just want to stay home and be with their family and just hate traveling. And, mm -hmm. and golf is just a hard game, man. It, it's, it's fragile, right? You get it going wrong one week, and then it, it can quickly snowball. You know, say you yeah. just have a bad week, and the next week's like, hey, you know what? I, I had a terrible this week. And let's work on something I normally don't work on. Then you start working on that. And Mac and Leo, you guys probably are both familiar with this process, right? You start working on something like it's out of this world. But it's like, I never hit this bad before. Let's just try it. Then it just compounds, you know, mm. that, that, those bad habits, right? And then it just gets worse and progressively worse. Next thing you know, you're listening to anybody at any time for advice. And I'm not including, saying this happen happened hunting. Including Bon Jovi. Including Bon Jovi. <laughs> including Bon Jovi. But I think Hunter... I think Hunter played okay. I mean, he was making cuts last year and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, I think it marked, That's a good swing. It's, it, and his swing, when you look at the Chris Como guys, his swing has never changed. It's weird. You know, you have a uh, – no, is it Chris Comey or Foley? Foley, mm -hmm. right? They all work with Sean Foley, where Tigers is the one swing. Tiger and a guy named Jamie Lovemark. I feel like those are the two swings that, when Foley worked with them, it changed the most. I think Jamie worked with Foley as well. But Hunter's swing has mm -hmm. always been the same. It really has. Yeah, it looks very similar. So I don't know what's going on. It's, uh, you know, I think it's just a mental state in a lot of ways. Yeah. So you played at USC, and then you basically go pro and, and move to Italy, right? Can yeah. you talk to us about Italy? Like, For sure. What do you miss about Italy, and how was that experience? Well, I don't miss it much now, but <laughs> no, I do. I <laughs> I miss everything about it. So when I first turned pro, I actually moved to South America. I moved to Argentina for about two, almost three years, 2006, seven, somewhere in there. And when I say I moved there, it was a lot of, I was there for eight months, and then I'd come home for the holidays and then go back. So it was a lot of that. Same with Italy. Italy, I'd moved there in April and I'd come back in November for like six mm. years, you know, four, four to six years in a row. But I was first in Argentina. Because my game in college, I, my last two years, I really struggled. Or my senior year, I really struggled. And all these sponsors I thought I had lined up didn't really come to fruition. So I had an uncle down there said, hey, why don't you come down here? I'll get you cleared up. You know, you can practice and play out of the club where my family grew up. An old club called Hurlingham um, in Argentina, in Buenos Aires, just on the outskirts there. It's an old, like, English polo cricket club. Really cool place. Uh, built in the late 1800s, early 1900s. and from Monday through Friday, he put me on a regimented plan. Said, hey, you're going to treat this like a job. From 8 a.m. to 5 p.m., Monday through Friday, you're going to create your own schedule. And then on Saturdays, you and I can go play together. Sunday's off. And he says, if you agree to this, 
I'll help you, you know, get money together. And I said, sure. Like what other options would I have? So I did that. I was on that schedule in the winter time in Argentina. I mean, it's cold down there. And at the golf course, it was nice because there was nobody there. You know, it's very different from the United States. You had a, uh, the golf course was completely empty from Monday through Friday. So I had these five polo fields and I had one caddy that became a very good friend of mine. And he was with me 24 seven and he would shag, me. you know, there's no cart picker. There's nothing. I had my own golf balls. You hit him and he shags them. So we'd go out there and have my little laser and I'd laser him and I'd get distances. We'd go play. I'd have lunch there, go back out, play, practice, do whatever. And I did that for, you know, six months on. And then he, he paid for my European Q school. And in my third year, I finally got decent status over in Europe. And that's when I made the move to Italy. Um, but in Argentina, I stayed down there playing what is now the PG Latin America. It used to be called the Tour de las Americas, which was a big tour during the 90s. And then it became the PG Latin America. So I'd play those events, the Argentine Open, the Argentine Masters, the Colombian Open. And talk about like a growth, like personal growth. I was always big on traveling the world. My if you could tell me now if I had a, a dream, that would be to play a full-time European tour. Because if you're a good player playing full-time European tour, you're going to play in big tour events. But the lifestyle, the camaraderie, the cultures that you experience in, in the world, because I wouldn't call it the European tour. It's, it's the global tour, right? They play all over the world. Yeah. But I got my status over in Europe, moved over there. I lived on a little 25-acre ranch with this guy, Sergio. Sergio had a little guest house on his ranch. And for 500 euros a month, I'd pay him rent. Oftentimes, I didn't have the money to pay. But he's like, hey, just give me some golf balls and, you know, whatever. You're good to go. <laughs> you know, come play <laughs> golf with me. Yeah, exactly. He didn't really care. The guy, you know, he had a good amount of money. And, you know, he had his Where horses. was that exactly? About 30 minutes north of Milan. So you have Lake oh, so Como. North Italy. Oh. Yeah, northern Italy. So you have Lake Como, which is the very, you know, the beautiful part that Puni lives. Then right below it, you have Lago Maggiore. And Lago Maggiore is a bigger lake, I think, and just as pretty, but for whatever reason, not as famous. And I lived in a tiny little town there called Suno, Suno, Italy, kind of middle of nowhere. But I was right next to the golf course. And from April to October every year, I'd stay there. And then about November, mm -hmm. right, it started getting cold and you had to leave. So I'd come home, back to California, stay with the family, playing a handful of events, you know, Buick Open, L Open Qualifier, that kind of stuff. The Kenyan Open, not the Kenyan, yeah, the Kenyan Open, and then an event in India in Kensville in like March. And then April, the kind of season would start getting going. I'd go to Morocco, play a handful of events, and then it'd get warm kind of in Northern Europe. You probably know more of this, Leo, than I do. And about May is when the tournaments in France and Italy and Spain, you know, whatever, those would kind of start going on again. Mm -hmm. Then I'd go to that ranch and, you know, play at a golf course called Circolo de Bogonio which they have Q school there. And the guy that is the head pro there is an Argentine. And that was my connection. That's why I chose Italy is golf was first. So where can I go practice and play at a golf course? And this guy years back said, if you ever get your status, I'm the director of golf here. Send me an email, give me a call. And the guy did. And hmm. I'm forever grateful for him. Who were you traveling with during those years? Like mainly, your... mainly by myself. I traveled with a lot of Argentine guys. Scott Harrington, who I've become pretty close with over the last few years, he traveled one year with me out there. He stayed on the ranch and everything. And everybody knows Scott and the story. You know, he, he's been out there for a long time. And 
you know, his wife was diagnosed with cancer and she's battling through it. And it, it seems to be on the positive side. And then he finally this year got his tour card. Yeah, I think it was this past summer. He got his tour card at the age of 39, 40, mm. first time ever. And talk about a guy that's got immense talent, you know, always hit it forever, always had all the tools. And for him to finally get it, man, I was so happy. So I traveled with Scott quite a bit. Only one year, though, because he didn't really – he wanted to be home. You know, he had, his, he had his life at home in Scottsdale, and he wanted to be on the American tour. And then I traveled a little bit with Trent Leon, the Leon brothers who played golf at Oklahoma State. He was there one year. And then I traveled quite a bit with mainly Argentine players. I made a good connection with the guys down there. I traveled a bit with James McLean, an Australian player who won the NCAAs. And you, you might remember this, Mac, at University of Minnesota. Traveled with him quite a bit. There's a whole bunch of guys. But I like traveling on my own. You know, what are just, your thoughts on you know, Brooks Kepka obviously, going over there, Uline going over there? What are your thoughts on kind of the pathways, you know, European Tour, Corn Ferry, PGA Tour? I think it's great. That's why I went over to Europe is because Europe has established this type of hierarchy, uh, climbing the ladder for years. So you could play various tours where they were called the Euro Pro, as you know, the Alps Tour, uh, the Nordic League. And these were kind of mini tours over there. So on the off weeks, I would play a few Alps Tour events. And I'm telling you, these Alps Tour events were not, they were great. They were, they were run very well. There was okay money. I mean, if you win, it's between five and 10,000 euros. And they only cost three to 400 euro to play. So mm. they were actually pretty good deals. And the competition was not very strong. I'm telling you, I probably mm. played four or five events and played very average golf. Where my golf there on a mini tour here would be down the list. But there I was finishing third and fourth. So anyways, at the end of the year, the top 10 from that tour, 10 from the Nordic League, 10 from the Alps Tour, 10 from the Euro Pro, would get their Challenge Tour card. Right. And then the top, whatever, 10 from the challenge show to get their European tour card. So it was a very natural progress progression where here it was PJ tour or nothing. And now it's even more difficult. I think it's corn ferry and the corn ferry is really hard, man. It's, you can argue it's yeah. the toughest tour out there. So Nico, yeah. six, six to seven years you were, you were out, right. Is that right? You were traveling, yeah. you're doing the European thing and yeah. coming back and forth. And did you, at a certain point, did you get into the, like get into it in the fact where like this is, you know, this Renaissance experience, this cultural immersion that I'm having in this journey, or were you just so into the journey or was there a plan in place as to where you wanted to go with it and stages and steps and, you know, everything else? Halfway through when I was over there and most typical professional golfers, right? When I was, when I was in college and, and junior, it was, you know, you slate guys like, oh, this guy's going to be on tour. And I was one of those guys. I was a good player. People were like, oh, Nico's going to play on tour. And I thought that too. But then my last year in college golf and early pro, I wasn't having much success. And it's very easy to slip into what am I going to do next, right? Is golf really, you know, deep down, everybody knows, man, can I make this? Do I have, I have the talent, but man, do I have the, the guts for this stuff? I don't know. Because some guys, you, you, you align yourself and you compare yourself with guys that maybe don't have the talent, but man, those guys, they just, they'll beat you down. They'll do whatever it takes to make it. Am I that guy? Am I going to do whatever it takes to make it? Because I loved living in Europe. I, I got my papers for Italy. Like I thought I was staying over there for, for the long haul. Doing what? I have no idea. But your mind starts to wander and it starts to travel into different things, right? The day after Cabrera, Angel Cabrera won the Masters, 
he had his tournament down in Cordoba, Argentina. And I was down there playing that tournament. So he flies in Monday or Tuesday. I'm conducting a clinic for his foundation. And I'm doing my little impersonations and trick shots, right? So on Wednesday, two or three days after this, he wins the Masters, you know, the, the town's electric, right? And we go over to his house for a barbecue and a few of the younger guys get around who are really talented as well. And I remember asking him a question. I was like, hey, do you have a piece of advice for us guys, you know, like going forward? He's like, you know, I look at you guys and you guys are all really talented. But there's one thing, there's one glaring difference is when I was your age, I was going to play golf. There was no plan B. It was golf the rest of my life, whether it be on the PGA Tour, whether it be on the mini tours of Argentina. It was golf the rest of my life because he didn't have an educational background. He didn't have connections to get into whatever it is, into private equity, into insurance, into real estate, whatever it is, opening up his own franchise. You know, he didn't have that. He was going to be a caddy or play golf. Mm. And there's a lot of guys that do that now who are still in their 40s and 50s playing kind of low, strong events in South America. Yeah. But he knew I'm that. Really and, and I'm he, really curious. That's, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No, and, and, and just to finish off, and he looked at us and he goes, I don't see that in you guys. Like, you guys are well-educated. You guys come from good families. You guys have other options. And every mm-hmm. bad round that you play, that's the first thing that's going to creep into your head. And I was like, God dang it, he's right. Like, that hit me. That hit me. Because every time I had a bad round, I was like, what am I doing? You know, what am I doing? Yeah. You know, yeah. I could be doing uh, this. I could be doing that. I could be doing this. That's so fascinating. And that's something that hits you about halfway through that journey. And it's, it's just, yeah, I, I always thought about that. Like, you know, do you think it's required to be myopic to be really like to have the, a career like that? I mean, it seems to me like there's a lot of these guys, like you look at Tiger and you look at Sergio Garcia or you look at Roy McIlroy, some of the top, top, and they seem to have other interests. And I mean, I don't know. I've seen Tiger with his lobster, you know, like, or, yeah. or you know, you know, Sergio is supposedly a really good soccer player and tennis player and things like that. And is it just sports or is it, do you have to be just myopic to sports or, or kind of what are your thoughts on that? Especially having traveled and, and had the perspective that you had, you know, played college golf at the highest level, amateur golf, and seeing guys like that are high level amateur golfers that might have careers in addition. You know, what are your thoughts on kind of how, how singular minded you need to be? Well, I call that the Freddie Couples effect, right? Because you can have guys that can roll out of bed, not hit a golf ball for a month and go shoot 65, no problem. There's just some guys that whatever gift God gave them for a golf swing, they can repeat, right? Because in the end, it's can you repeat the motion under high pressure conditions? Mm-hmm. That's what it is. Can you, can you play well when you have to play well? I think that's what it comes down to. Some guys, I think, are born to do it. I really do. You know, Freddie doesn't really take lessons, doesn't really practice. He's just gifted in what he has. Then you have the other end of the spectrum, the Tom Kites. And I think Peter Uline is kind of the same way, where Peter Uline had the top instruction, the top teachers, right, and, and is making his way out there playing golf. So I do believe those guys, the Tom Kites of the world, have to have sort of myopic focus. And then you have the other world where the Sergio's, man, he's, you just watch him. He's, like, blessed to have a golf club, you know, like a Seve. When you see Seve hold a golf club, it just looks right. It looks like he's meant to hold a golf club. So I think it's a little bit of both, yeah. and you have to identify it. Then when you get – both those merging together, you get Tiger. Yeah, <laughs> that's so insightful, though. I really, I, I love, I love what you just said, and I agree with you 100. percent And I try to tell that to, you know, 
I mean, with, with our team in itself, just they're like, oh, how come it's so much easier for other guys to advance in the company versus, you know, I've been here for six years and, you know, and, and talking about, and same thing with clients coming in. Oh, you don't even practice. You don't even try. And I, I'm grinding away here. I can barely move my hips. And, and having these conversations with people about how, you know, how to not compare yourself to others. I mean, that, that's such a powerful thing that you just described and knowing who you are. And, and that, that was a lot of, that was a lot of wisdom that you had at that age, even to, to kind of see that and not just force it. And you're right. And knowing who you are, because guys like Carlos Franco, Carlos Franco never warmed up before rounds. You'd have a glass of OJ, hit three putts, and go tee it. At the highest level, Carlos Franco played the last round at Q School putting with a driver and got his PGA Tour card. Like, that, that blows my mind. And he didn't break his putter. He chose, I believe, to putt with his driver. Like, think about the fear, the lack of fear you have to have to do that, right? Yeah. And guys, like I said, I, I identified, my dad was an engineer right? So he was an analytical math guy. I wasn't. I was more on the creative side of things. But looking at how guys play practice rounds, you know, the Camille Villegas, I remember his yardage book was like a work of art. You know, Hunter Mann, yardage book, work of art. You know, Tiger, his yardage book. And I was like, I hate yardage books. Like, I don't, I don't need a yardage book. I know, it's, I know it's through the fairways dead. Like, I get that. I know left of the yeah. green's bad. I don't need to know that it's one 64 front left, pin is 170, you know, long is 178. I get, I don't need to, I don't need to hear that. That distracted me from playing golf. And then you're over the ball and you start freezing over the shot. Right. But I would try to drill yeah. that into myself because that's the way the best guys are doing it. Or so interesting. Yeah. When you talk about like these players that just were, they were born with it, or at least it seems like they're born with it. Do you feel like I almost, when you play with someone like that, it seems like they make up their mind during the golf swing. Like their intuition is so good that they can literally, you know, halfway down downswing, they can actually, they, they know kind of where they're at in space and they can literally without, obviously it's completely unconscious, a bad swing becomes a good swing. And then you have on the other side of the spectrum, like the grinder who it seems like when they set up, it's like after it's go time, it's over. Either it's a good shot or it's a bad shot. And then Freddie Couples, he can, it's more of a reactionary sport where it's like more fluid. It's hard to describe it. I don't know if, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Jack Nicholas, <laughs> number 17 at Pebble, 1982 US Open. Oh no. When did he win it? 72? When he won the US Open, that one iron that hit the flag. You know, he famously huh? describes at the top of his swing, he felt his face a little shut. You know, yeah. so on the downswing, he had to slide a little more to kind of hold the face open. So he hit a push draw. Like that's something that yeah. happens in a, in a split second. And the better, I think every golfer experiences that, but only half or whatever, there's a certain percentage that can make that quick adjustment and lean into mm -hmm. it. You see guys do it all the time when they hit their shots and they're like holding on, they're trying to make adjustments at the last second. And yeah. guys like Freddie Couples can probably do it on the fly. And then you have people that maybe can't do it and they need to lock in beforehand and it's either going to be yep. if they feel good about it, it's going to be a good shot and if not it's going to be a bad shot you know one guy I played yeah. a lot of golf with, uh, before was Tom Pernice and I always admired Tom Pernice's professionalism in the golf game we were playing this little match it was like an inner club match and you know Pernice is always dressed like a pro right his shirts you know ironed his pants are pleated like they're dress pants no tech stuff it's just 
the guy's proper classics and his swing you know it's not the most fluid and natural gifted swing it's always kind of he's working on something i think he was working with jim hardy at the time and doing the single plane stuff and he didn't play particularly good the front nine and i just turned pro and i was like oh man this guy's on tour but his mannerisms the entire time never changed he didn't care you could tell he didn't care what i thought he didn't care what anybody thought he was working mm -hmm. on something and that's what he was going to do and on the back nine he goes out and shoots 33 you know three or four hundred par and then the next week or two weeks later he goes out to a tour event and finishes fourth and that blew my mind that blew my mind mm -hmm. you know i'm struggling to get my tour card and he just finished fourth at a pga tour event in his late 40s and he was struggling with his golf swing you know people say he's got a great short game great you got a great short game that's that may have worked in the 70s and 80s but now you got to hit it far straight and high you know you got to mm. play your game and you got to roll the rock you got to hit drivers and roll the rock and to see him go through that and execute under high pressure you know there's that mental fortitude out there that you know he's probably not making those mid mid swing changes yeah he just sets up he you know he shuffles into a stance he gets up to it he'll make a bad swing or a good swing but he's yeah. like so committed to each shot. Each shot's a separate little, you know, dialogue with himself. And he just, and he yeah, it's owns almost it. like after the takeaway, it's over, right? Yeah. Like there, there, there's nothing more you can do. So I have a question for you. Cause I, I will never forget the first time I met you, Nico, we were at this golfers journal release event at link soul in Huntington beach. And I remember you taking up a seven iron and the way you handled the club, and you kind of looked at the face and you kind of flicked the, the club head right in the center of the, you know, like right in the center of the face. And I, I remember like seeing that sequence and you can just tell, right? Like you can just tell, okay, this is a person I have spent his whole life, you know, committed to this game. And we talked about this with like Jamie Mulligan and all these coaches. And I think it's such an interesting topic is like, your mannerisms, your movements, the way you handle the club and the way you interact between like your hands and the club face and the, and the golf ball. How important is that to, to improve your golf game, do you think? Like how important is those kind of intangibles that aren't measured in the game, but the best players are really good at it and bad players can't do it? Well, I don't necessarily agree with you. In, in general, in general, you're correct. But look at Gary Player. Does Gary Player, when you watch his mannerisms, does he look natural, like holding the golf clubs? When I watch Gary Player, you know, he, he swings. He doesn't, like Seve. Seve Ballesteros, man, he's, he's molded as one to that club. You watch a guy yeah. like Gary Player who's one of the all-time greats of the golf game. And you just watch him kind of hold the club and walk and the way he tees it up and twirl. It doesn't look natural, right? It doesn't look like he knows, you know, He's just new to the game. Just go back and watch videos of Gary Player of how he tees <laughs> it up. Stiff. Yeah, he's all stiff and, you know, his finish and he holds it, you know, he, he releases it and then puts it in his right hand and holds it. It's just not fluid yeah. versus a guy like, a, you know, a Nicky. But player. he can hold the two clubs with two fingers. You're right. Or a flag stick. He can do the flag stick too, which I, I don't believe, but I, <laughs> he probably can't do it. But he, uh, he doesn't look, you know, natural and, and flowy to the game. He always looks kind of awkward. But I get what you're saying, because people that do have that natural sort of touch of the game, to me, it's just that they started the game when they were young. And that's kind of the so big that being, indicator. 
but that being said, Nico, like, so what you're just described, well, Greg Norman started it pretty late and mm-hmm. looked, looked like he, I mean, you could give him anything. He looked like an athlete, but it's like, I guess really where, where, so what do you identify? What are you looking for when you look like, when you can see a good, like how Leo's like, Oh, that's a good player. And he sees you flicking the club. Like where, where do you, what's your club flicker? Like where, where do you, what do you see someone on the range? You're like, Oh, other than some MP 29s all shiny. No, you're right. And I'm, and I'm the same way. I mean, obviously when you watch Gary player swing, you know what he's doing, obviously. And he just might be one example of the other 10,000 players that you can tell that they have something in there. They have something ingrained in their, in their DNA. There's an old surf movie called North Shore. And like one of the famous quotes is like, I can tell you're, you know, I can tell you can't surf by the way you wear your shorts. You know, and golf is a lot like that. I can tell what kind of player you are the second you pull your clubs out of the park in a lot of ways. How you carry the golf clubs. I'm like, mm, this guy, he knows what he's doing or he doesn't know what he's doing. Right. And, and the crazy ways. thing is you can see you can see that from 300 yards yes, away, too. Absolutely. That's the weird thing with like the mannerisms around golf is you can see someone doing a, you know, fake swing with their hands 200 yards down the fairway. And, you know, OK, that's an 18 handicapper. When I see a guy put the balls on to hit golf balls in the range, the way he rakes a ball to put it next for his next shot, you know, does he kind of slowly wrap it around it's like a hockey movie, you kind of wrap the club face around. Yeah, you know, kind of like this, and you put it right there. Maybe give a little tap in front of the divot, you know, get it nice and set up. You know, it's like okay, this guy has touch. He's got touch. They all call him Montgomery, right there. Yeah, I, mean, I, just, I just saw actually a video of Mac O'Grady. He's like wearing these little. There's so many of these Mac O'Grady videos, and he's hitting lefty, just beautiful swings. And he's got these little white shorts that he was always practicing in, and he was just he'd crush one, and he'd like make the most beautiful swing, and then pull a ball. Pull out of shorts. <laughs> <laughs> I saw that too. Just like so slick. Yeah. <laughs> But those kind of things, and when you see, you know, somebody do a little bit of juggling here and there, you know, it's like, ah, right, these guys have touch. That, that stuff is very hard to teach. But I think that's one big indicator. When, they rake, when, they, when you're on a range and you rake a ball to put it right behind for the next shot, like, ah, oh, this guy knows what he's doing. Because most people, they can't. It's an awkward move. But I hit balls left hand a lot. I've been doing it for a lot of years. I tweak my back in high school. And I remember a therapist just saying, hey, just hit balls left-handed. It'll offset. It's like doing 100 bicep curls right-handed and none mm-hmm. left-handed. Like, no matter what you do with training, you can help deter injury, but you have to replicate the movement. You have to mirror it. If you're swinging right-handed, try to swing left-handed to offset that spring. And I've always liked Mm -hmm. that. So I've always done that. And now, more recently, I'm trying to to be a lefty in a way. Like, I want to become left-handed. Like, and I can't rake the ball from the pile of golf balls left-handed with my head cocked this way with my right hand, not, you know, I can't do yeah. it. It's hard. I have to think about it. Like, okay, yeah. hand, grab the ball, bring it here, put it behind the divot. I can't do that. My left hand, it's just very hard. It's yeah. just years of innate touch. Um, yeah. As but, long as you don't do the maintaining the grip two hand rake. Oh God. That- <laughs> or everybody does it right-handed. You know, it's so easy for me to just get right-handed and put the club over and do it right-handed. Yeah. But yeah. I try to tee the ball up left-handed you know, all that kind of stuff. And I feel like that's what a newbie golfer is, you know? Yeah. I'm kind of, I'm kind of lucky with my little, with Sevy with the six year old. He's just, I mean, he's lefty dominant, but he's pretty ambidextrous. It's nuts. Like he just, you're like, Hey, do it with your right hand, do it with your left hand. And he'll just, he'll switch like while he's writing, he's learning cursive right now and he'll switch both hands. And so I'm just like, this is a gift right now. I'm just like constantly like, Hey dude, use your right instead of your left. And I'm, con- you know, telling him to shift and he shifts without even 
thinking about it. I'd be curious to see like the science behind that. Like at what point does somebody choose to go, is, you know, what is it, what's the makeup in the brain or in the body? Is it from watching you that they decide to pick up something and start writing right-handed or left-handed? You know, like, I think I it's uh, like evolutionary or physiologically it's 50, 50. The right hand thing is a social construct. It's just something you watch somebody do. Right. And it's like, okay, I'll yeah. just pick up and do it this yeah. way. So yes, Mac, yeah. keep Savvy doing both ways. Like that's, I'm doing, I'm gonna, yeah, I'm sending him over to you when he's about 10 anyway, so he's going to get into it. I mean, he's going to come back just playing off the opposite side. Like, wait, he was lefty, now he's playing right now. I'm like, yeah, I'm just like, I'm offsetting everything. So Nico, I got to ask you, so like one thing I find so fascinating, like just listening to you talk and every time we, we've had some chats, you're just an absolute purist of the game. You have a, an immense love for it. You can see that regardless of if you're playing professionally today or throughout your whole life. I mean, you know, it, it, it's evident. Like what, 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 where does that deep love for the game come from? And, and why is it going to be part of your identity for the rest of your life? You know, it's just one of those sports. I think about this a lot. It's one of those sports. There's, there's nothing you can do and there's no one you can rely on besides yourself, right? You take the ultimate responsibility of everything you do in this game, right? you extract results from the work you put into it, right? In general, right? From a 30,000 foot view, that's kind of in general what it is. Not like basketball or baseball or other sports where you can rely on other team members to maybe bail you out of certain situations. Golf, man, you are exposed. Talk about vulnerability, you are exposed. And it's the pursuit, you'll never master it. It's the pursuit and mankind, right? We're natural, like foragers, you know, go west, young man. Like we're always seeking for something, for some better improvement. And I think golf is, the, is one of the ultimate tools. And I don't care what level you're at. You know, one of the members at, you know, UGP, you know, Nick Bach, he, man, I love his passion for the game. He's late to the game, but he's always pursuing something better, striving something better. What is it? No one really knows, you know, like, Goal setting is one of those deals where sometimes I set goals, sometimes I don't, right? Because if you, if you set goals, you limit yourself, right? Maybe you can do things better than that, right? And then you have like the little mini goals that are right in front of you that are tangible. But golf is that combined with storytelling and the romanticized aspect of the sport. You're in a beautiful setting. It's a global sport. Uh, I don't think people realize how global it is. And the connections and, and the personalities and the people you meet through this game, it's unlike any other sport unlike any other sport, you know, and, and there's just so many stories and there's so much history to tell, you know, all those things sort of combine into a melting pot to, you know, yeah. create this magnet of a game. Yeah. Oh, it's beautiful. So a question that we ask every guest is you have the opportunity to go to a golf course and get a lesson from anybody in the world that are alive, could be outside of the golf industry as well play 18 holes with another one and then have a, have a beer with one after. And I, and I, and Leo, sorry, I want to add a fourth one just for Nico that uh -huh. just to go off script here, you know, what golf course at what, yeah. at what setting at what golf course. Yeah. yeah. So lesson 18 hole and then a beer lesson 18 hole. And then a lesson could be about anything or is it kind of golf lesson? Anything, mm, anything. Oh man. Oh man. Those are big questions. We'll, we'll, we'll stick with golf just cause it's, it's yeah. It's in the golfing world. I would have loved to work with Harvey Penick. I read the little red book. I read 
the little black book. I never met him, but knowing what kind of person Crenshaw is, I see a lot of what Crenshaw does and his respect for the, the past of our game. And I think a lot of that was, you know, brought down from Harvey Penick. I'd love to mm. have met Harvey because he didn't teach golf swing. It was just he taught so many things outside of golf. And I always thought maybe I should apply more of that to me, um, looking back on it. And then mm. it was Playton Holes of Golf with Bobby Jones. Why I say Bobby Jones is it was that, you know, the greats, right? Jones, Hogan, Tiger, Norman. Norman was my idol growing up. But now I look back on this Bobby Jones because it was a different era. And Greg Hopkins, who I referred to earlier in the podcast, was the president of Cleveland Strix on Golf. He developed a very good relationship with Byron Nelson. And he asked that question to Byron Nelson. Who's the greatest ball striker you've ever seen? And he was expecting Hogan, Sneed, Sarazen. He said, hands down, Bobby Jones. And that blew my mind. That blew his mind. That blew my mind. Like, Bobby Jones? Really? Hickory? He goes, he was doing things with those clubs nobody could do. He was hitting it 280, 300 with Hickory and, and the golf balls that played during the time. So that kind of blew my mind. So now I'm watching all the old videos. I've seen a million times. I'm like, God, is he, is he really hitting that 300 yards? Like, is it different than everybody else? That would have been fascinating to play golf 18 holes with. And then having a beer, having a beer, I'll keep it. We'll, we'll stick with golf. I don't know. I feel like a guy like a Bing Crosby would have been a fun guy to have a beer with because Bing Crosby was a big-time golfer but also had a lot of Hollywood celebrity in him. I'm sure there are a lot of good, fun stories with him over at Lakeside and playing golf in the L.A. scene. That would have been a pretty fun guy to have, golf, have a beer with. Um, is El Pato fun to party with? El Pato is very fun to party with. There is, <laughs> is that, that's a rhetorical question. Yeah, El Pato. That's Angel Cabrera, if nobody knows who that is. He's one of those guys where we'd be multiple times, I'd be going home for dinner, like from dinner, entering the hotel. He'd be leaving to go have dinner and he tees off his first time off the next morning. Like he's just on a different league. That Is guy. he like Maradona in, in Argentina for uh, golf? No, nobody will ever be Maradona for golf probably, but Divisenzo, yeah. Divisenzo is, 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 is the Donna there in golf. You know, he's the father okay. of golf for Argentina. I mean, that's a guy I'd love to, if you talk to Jack Nicholas and those guys, they all refer to Roberto Divisenzo as possibly being the greatest long iron and fairywood player they've ever seen. And I think he's a very under-recognized player in our game. You know, because he, he almost won the Masters and he won the British Open at, in his mid-40s. You know? huh. So, Nico, uh, last, last walk down a fairway, what fairway are you walking down? Gosh, last walk down a fairway. 18 St. Andrews. Simple. Home of golf. With Bobby Jones. That would be pretty rad. It, it, what else? <laughs> I mean, come on. <laughs> that would be pretty – it's the home of golf where, you know, Bobby Jones is like – I think the only – he's the only outside – he's the only American member of either the RNA. He's, he's like the only person to be given a – what is it? What do you call it when you give like a – when you graduate like a – An sad, honorary but, member or something like yeah, that? Yeah, like an honorary – you don't graduate the school, but you're, you're an honorable so-and-so from like, you know mm. – the, the the council of edinburgh something like that of st andrews my facts are awful there but he's like the only one there he was just so iconic and for me i just because i know what today is like and i know what the 80s are like in the 70s you know ideally but i don't know what that time was like right i don't know what kind of golf they played so i would love to play golf with him with my mentality today it'd also be funny me showing up with my modern clubs and i'm playing with bobby jones in 1929 
and just seeing the difference. And what he's, is he, he's eating lemon pie at the turn in the middle of a 36 hole event. <laughs> I swear to God, like in the summer between, you know, his matches, they, he'd eat lemon pie and drink vodka, take a, you know, drink vodka between rounds. Cause that was, nobody wow. knew any better. Like what? It's a thousand degrees outside and you're wearing all white linens and you're eating lemon pie a la mode. Like that blows my mind. Like it just, it'd be fascinating today to see that, you know, we're in our tech, yeah. in our Under Armour and tech gear and all that kind of stuff and our Nike uh, shoes so, and whatever it yeah. is. And, yeah, yeah, like I, I remember reading that book about him and like East Lake in the, in the mid, like mid twenties, like yeah. the stories from the money games at East Lake. Yeah. And, and, and I was so glad when Hopkins told me that Nelson, who may have been the greatest ball striker more than more so than Hogan. That's yeah. a great story. That's a great com- uh, comparison, by the way, is the Hogan Nelson thing versus talent and worked talent, God given mm-hmm. talent versus working talent. Um, yeah. Because yeah. Nelson knew, Nelson knew that Hogan knew, right? That's why they had to kind of falling off in the relationship in a way. Mm-hmm. Nelson knew he was always better, and Hogan knew that too. Nelson knew Hogan knew. Hogan had a work his tail off to beat nelson nelson that's be so a, well nelson that's so well ranger. documented in the match you know yeah exactly. in, that, in that book the match they talk about it so extensively and how he'd hook it into the trees to get apples and yeah. you know and just that edge that he had yeah and, and, and nelson knew the whole time like i'm better than you i don't have to work at this and i'm better than you i think that ate at hogan a little bit but i would just I, i'd be fascinated to see the whole bobby jones thing and just what world oh. and what golf game they were living like what, you know taking ships to go play majors like now we're flying over there and coming back in a week. They're they're gone for three months, like practicing. Yeah. You know, it just blows my mind. I'd love to see what it was like. That's like my favorite favorite part of the podcast today is lemon pies, vodka, and <laughs> and on a sunny day in Saint in Scotland in Saint Andrews. I'd love that. And just and just be fascinated, like what? Like I got a protein smoothie right here, working for me. You're lemon pie. <laughs> yeah, he's and not only that, but he's gonna go home like kind of, kind of little buzz and do like do some legal paperwork. Yeah, as well. legal paperwork. <laughs> exactly, not get paid for. Like it just, it just blows my mind the the mindset, you know. <laughs> but maybe, and I always relate to him. Maybe that would have worked for me. Maybe if I would have backed off the, you know, because I have a good swing and all. But you, you fall into traps. You fall into, I need to do this, this, and this to get better. This guy's working with, you know, Butch Harmon. I need to go work with Butch Harmon. Like, maybe that's mm-hmm. not for you. You know, do you really no. want to see him? Like, well, no, I don't, but I should, right? I should see him, you know? Or I'm, I know, that's, I know that story so well, man. And we got we to gotta do another one of these podcasts with you because I think we can get really deep into the mind of the player and, yeah. you know, and all that stuff. So thanks so much for taking hey, the time with us today. Absolutely, yeah. Mac. Leo, thanks to you guys. You guys are our luminaries, I think, of, of California and especially Southern California and the golf industry. And, you know, I know it's tough times right now and, you guys are making do the best you can and you know where we can do support so yeah i appreciate it. this was a lot of fun we'll yeah. do it again sometime absolutely leo mac take care, take guys. care. thanks nico take yep. easy bud bye-bye